Today, Acts chapter 12, verse 20, and then the first three verses of chapter 13. Hear now the very word of God. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a god and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a lifelong friend of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of God. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this narrative account of people that are pandering, people who are relying on their own pomp. And Father, we know that we pander our idols and we make ourselves even an idol. We even take our worship and our religion and faith, and reshape them for our own purposes. So we ask that you would convict us of this sin in our hearts and minds and actions, and that we would instead hope in the power of your kingdom, that we would see the reality that these things only lead to death and where your kingdom will last forever because of the work of your Son and the power of your Holy Spirit. We ask that we would have that work being manifested in us today with the reading and the preaching and the hearing of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. This uh, particular passage is somewhat short compared to some sections, and it's um, a very, very graphic um, narrative of the account of Herod. This is Herod um, Agrippa. This is the same Herod earlier in the chapter that called for and had James executed and likely beheaded. Uh, this is a completion. It's it's somewhat unfortunate that. Um, we've had a break since I preached on the other passages 
where these accounts are because we're having to rewind a little bit and, and think about what had occurred there with this growth of the church that we see James being executed, which was a, a big blow to the church. But then we see Peter being released from prison in a very miraculous and somewhat humorous account with how an angel came and struck him. We don't know if it's the exact same angel, but I, I kind of like to think in my mind that it was probably the same angel. When he got the appointment, he, he's like, oh, do I get to hit somebody? And he gets and he strikes the same Greek word where he strikes Peter to wake him up, and Peter thought he was still asleep. It's the same Greek word that the angel struck Herod and killed him in this very graphic, gruesome death. And it is somewhat of a bookend for us to that whole account that here we have the powers that be, the powers that people on earth hope in, being brought down to being eaten by worms, and then we see that God's word is going to continue. As gruesome and as gross as this passage is, and somewhat convicting that my first part of this presentation should be for us, this is tremendously a passage of hope for us. It's just a matter of what are we going to hope in. So let's just look at the account for what it is. We have Herod. We don't know what is going on here for certain other than that Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. Those are the two major cities in Phoenicia. And Tyre and Sidon have an interesting history throughout the scriptures. There is the positive account that we have with King Hiram of Tyre who helped build the temple and brought forth materials and cedars and timber for the building of the temple during Solomon's age. And he recognized and he glorified the God of Israel during this process. But we see also throughout the Old Testament for Tyre and Sidon that these were cities of judgment, that God was going to pour forth his judgments, and he did. And then Tyre and Sidon is also considered to be such a byword in the gospel time that Jesus said that it would even be better for Tyre and Sidon if these miracles were performed there than it would be for Bethsaida, for the, the places that are supposed to be those who acknowledge God because they did not repent. He, would, he said that Tyre and Sidon would repent. It would be like whatever you would think of a person that is the lowest of the whole world, that they would be in a better place, that they would respond better to the power and the might of God than his own church. That's what kind of insult that it was from Jesus to those who were hearing. And so Tyre and Sidon have an interesting history, and I really can't find that it has too much um, relevance to this particular passage. I've read other commentaries and nobody really says that Luke was trying to make a, a major point other than we know that it was the people of Sidon and we can kind of bring in some of that baggage with us. We can even think of the positive account of the Syrophoenician woman. She would have been from that general region, which is one of my favorite stories in scriptures where she even recognized that for her, that even eating the crumbs at the table of her master was enough for her when Jesus even gave kind of maybe tongue-in-cheek insult to her and called her a, a dog. And that she said, well, it's even better to be a dog for you and eat your, the crumbs off your table. And, so, and, it was, and he also gave her one of the greatest compliments of showing what tremendous faith that she had also. So 
We don't know the, the full account here, but we can tell that there must have been some kind of dispute. There has been a historical connection with Tyre and Sidon with Israel. And here we have now Herod, a Roman governor of this particular land, and they have had historically some dealings with Israel, and they depended upon the king's country here for food. And so they were in a time of desperation, and they were also in a time of maybe somewhat humiliation because Herod was angry with them for some reason that no one seems to know. And so they were in a position and a posture where to be able to get food from Herod, they need to pander. (laughs) They needed to be in a place where they could encourage him to show forth some grace so that they could have some food. And it says here that they persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain. Some say that that word actually is more in line with bribe, that they were politically working in in a way to try to get into the goods of Herod once again so that they may be able to be fed. And then in verse 21, it says, On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes and took his seat upon the throne and delivered an oration to them. Now, this account is is very brief, um, and it's done by Luke, obviously. But Josephus, who is a trusted historian of this time, has a parallel account that does not conflict with or conflict with uh, Luke's account at all, but he goes into a lot more detail about what's going on in this account. So if you could think about it, here you have Herod, who has this power over Tyre and Sidon. He has some kind of beef with them. They know that there is this position of not being revered and, and respected, and they, so they're begging to him. They're coming, and they're, they're, they're pandering. They're, they're petitioning him for, for bread, and then they're going to go into a time of, of praise. And Herod's response to these groveling envoys coming to him is that he puts on a show. And Josephus says that it was a big-time show that it was a multi-event presentation. There was truly a show. They're thinking that it would actually occur August 1st in 45 AD, and it was to celebrate the founding of the city of Caesarea and to bring forth a lot of praise to him. And when it is talking about, when Luke says that he put on this royal robe, this was some robe. It was interwoven with pure silver, and it glittered, and it glowed. And Josephus says that he came out early in the day where the sun would be hitting the amphitheater, and he would sparkle and shine. He would glow. And so their response to him was not just some kind of, just a groveling thing, like, oh, it's the voice of a, man, a God, not of a man. He was living the part and was electrifying before this crowd. And Josephus says that it was in more of the sense of the crowd was going wild. They were bought into this. This was not just mere pandering. It was giving into this deception. This is really like a god. Us And so Herod, who is really, again, just as a reminder, 
Herod, this particular Herod, never called himself Herod. He was really just considered to be Agrippa, but in consistency of where Luke is telling this narrative, he is putting more of the positional name upon him because it fits better with the overall narrative of Acts and also in the Gospel of Luke. But we have this leader who is already thinking of himself as a god, and he is posturing himself in this great position, in taking advantage of the circumstance where people are seeing him, that he's got such an arrogancy and confidence in himself that he robes himself in this glitter jacket. I can't help to, to think of Elton John and how the fanfare of how he dresses. And I was trying to think of that other musician, and Jennifer, I couldn't think of it, that dressed in lots of glittery garb. Who was that? Yeah, oh, y'all guys were on it. <laughs> so, and that's what I'm imagining here. If you can imagine that kind of scene, and you know, we have artificial lights of spotlights that come on the people, that everything else is darkened. Well, in that time, they knew how to still get the same kind of effect that he came out at a certain, Josephus says it came out at a certain part in the early of the day just so the sun would hit him so he would glow in front of everyone. This is a, a very vivid scene of, one, these people giving, given to a place because of their, of their own appetites, but also their own personal deception where they are taking the praise and the petition that actually belong to God and bringing it forth to Herod, and they are pandering. They're pandering him, but they are truly praising him at the same time. And then we have Herod in this fullness of his pomp, and a a great display of pomp. Again, it was multi-shows. It was a, a big deal. It was that amphitheater even to this day is still, the ruins of that is still there. You can go there and see the very place where Agrippa stood before those of Tyre and Sidon and, his own, and also other people from Israel and stood there and had this show. So the first two points of my sermon today are the pandering of people and the ostentatious pomp of people. And I think it's important for us to not go too quickly through here. I want to go slowly and think about how the nature of mankind in our own nature how we will pander our idols and then even ourselves become a a pomp of idol ourselves. Now, there's a third point, and I'm going to go ahead and and quiz you all today. It's another P word. So you've got to remember it's it's pander and pomp, but on a positive note, that's not the right word, though. What do you think the third one is? What is a word that you could summarize the point of Acts and a P word. If you could take everything, and I've, I gave you a hint of this maybe a few Sundays back, that this would be one of the main themes that carry throughout of Acts. And there's actually a couple other ones too with P, but we're going to focus on, on one and then maybe subpoints use the other P words. But what do you, who, what, who could come up with, what, how would you summarize? The very point of Acts, if if you could use just a P word. Perseverance. Perseverance? Eh, Kind of. Prosperity of God's people. That's not bad. That's good. I'm going to write these down so I can use them for other sermons. (laughs) Proclamation is good, but not quite. Power is one of my sub points. 
and it's interwoven with that, so you get at least a consolation prize on that one. (laughs) Come on. Purpose is close. Promise. Acts as a fulfillment of tremendous promise. If I hopefully, if you, if I didn't give you the restriction of P, that you would say it has a lot to do with the Holy Spirit. You know, it's been debated what would be the best way to actually t- name this book. Is it the Acts of the Apostles or the Acts of the Holy Spirit? And that's a, a really a, a fun conflict that we have there because the Acts of the Apostles are only fueled and equipped and fruitful because of the acts of the Holy Spirit. And this is a fulfillment of promises, and it shows forth the power of the Holy Spirit in that promise. And then the other sub-point I would think that we would want to remember is the participation, which may have to do with the perseverance and the proclamation, but of how God's people get to participate in that very power that was promised in the Holy Spirit. And so we're going to be contrasting those two different things, the pandering and the pomp of mankind and their sin with the promised power and participation of that power of his church and his kingdom. And so therefore, if you look in the order of worship that I've named this sermon, kingdoms versus kingdom or kingdom versus kingdom our kingdom with a lowercase k versus the very kingdom of God. And that is a theme that continues to happen in Acts. As that promise is being fulfilled, it is purposeful that Luke is contrasting the Herods. That's why he went ahead and continued, even though it was not a common thing for him to be recognized so much as the Herod. He's still Herod, but it was more so, his name was more so considered to be Agrippa. He's showing that thematic element between the kingdoms of this earth Versus the kingdom of God, the promise of the kingdom of God being powered by the Holy Spirit through the work, by the work of Jesus Christ through the, through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we see this very clearly, but it's important for us not to just kind of stand back and look at this as a spectator, but to look at the human nature element of what these people were going through. And we can see it very clearly today. This is a, a political story. This is having to do with people and political powers in place. And so we can very quickly look into our own age today and see how people act that way. Whether you look at what's going on in Europe right now, or whether you look at our own place, and we have different ways of seeing how this is pandering. And regardless of what you believe about the policies of Trump and what you think about whether we'd rather be back in those versus where we are under Biden, it's impossible if you've given any kind of general overview of the, the whole scene, it's impossible for us not to at least admit there was a, the supporters of Trump, there's a lot of pandering there. There's just over-the-top recognition. You, know, you would think that, he is, that he's God. And how does Trump respond to that? <laughs> he kind of thinks he is. You know, he's very self-centered in his way. So again, I'm not saying that I'd have to admit, I'd rather be under his policies and his leadership right now, but it is very clear. It's almost a caricature of this very kind of story where you have the leader sees 
himself as something much greater than he is. And you have people who, because of their own appetites and their own desires, are given to this praise of a man that doesn't really deserve the the level of praise and honor that is given to him. And then you can reverse it over to Biden. You can reverse it to local governors. You can put it into the place where even in this account today, when we look at the, the just the, the uniform one accord mindset that we have for Zelensky, and I'm going to say this without any apology, Zelensky's a dictator, totalitarian. Just this past couple of weeks, he shuts down other parties that speak against him. He banned them and shut them down. He is very much like Putin. He has closed the ability for other people to speak on television and radio. And people are saying, he is the hero of democracy. He is not. Now, I lament the suffering that the Ukrainian people are going through. We need to be praying for them and praying for both the Ukrainian and Russian people in this particular scene and praying for us because this is an interesting stage for us in history of where this is likely going to affect us for a long time, what's going on over there. And it is very grievous, the things that are happening to innocent people. But to take this, you know, it's just our human nature. We want to shape things that are not God into these heroes of things that they're not. It's something about us. We are so given to shaping idols and giving praise to things that don't belong. And we are also very much, when we have those opportunities, we want to take on that pomp for ourselves, And we take praise for ourselves instead of giving that very glory to God. John Calvin says that the whole of Christian life's challenges are in this place between despair and pride. That's where we usually are. And that was very enlightening for me to realize that usually in whatever my weaknesses are in my conflicts with my family or other people, whenever I found myself in a place where I'm contemplating everything and I go, I think I need to repent. <laughs> I think I've, I've gone across the line. I think I've, I've handled this wrongly. It's usually in responding in those, one of those two different ways, the fear or a despair and not trusting God in his glory, and assuming upon myself that I, it should be something different, whatever, it was not trusting God, or it was that other P word that Kelly pointed out, pride. And they are really ultimately the same thing, where we have made the narrative of life and what we think is the reality into something that's really our own idol. We have this view that it is something that is not in, that's not consistent with Scripture. And so wherever we are at, and, and I hope that you would think about that, how do you pander to your own gods whenever you are in a place of despair? Or maybe it's not so much despair, but to, to try to offset because of your fear of the potential of some kind of harm that you will begin to pander either people or things or ideas or processes in your life that you will try to take control of offsetting that fear in ways that are not consistent with trusting God. I feel like the sermon in many ways kind of dovetails into what Maurice was preaching on last Sunday about our anxieties. We are 
often convinced by Satan to need to be anxious about things that are essentially indicating that God doesn't have control. Or that we forget who we are. That we are not those who are purchased by Jesus Christ. And therefore we can try to shape a path ourselves to try to protect our interest and our desires. I believe all of our idolatries are usually caught up in one of those ways that we're trying to take control because of our fear or we have too much confidence, which is still the same thing in in many ways where they touch so closely. We have too much confidence in ourselves that even the very things that we have received have been based upon our own power and our own strength. And therefore, we have this ostentatious pomp. It's, this is supposed to be a display, this kind of very graphic and vivid display of really what it's like for us. We're usually in one of those two positions. But there's good news here. There's good news here that we're not left to this. We see that the angel comes and he does strike Herod. It, it shows us a very vivid picture of the end of this kind of thinking. Not only for Herod, but also for the people, their hopes are shattered. The one that they were putting all their hopes into, the one that they had even been maybe convinced into thinking was some sort of God, at the very moment that he is showing forth this show, Josephus even says that he kills over and he was grasping his heart and stomach and they had to carry him off the stage. And in his account, he died five days later. It's interesting that commentators, both that read Josephus and Luke's account here, they were trying to determine, well, maybe he had appendicitis or maybe he was poisoned by arsenic. I think Luke made it clear he's a physician. He's not, just a, he's not being overly poetic here. He, he was eaten by worms. <laughs> you know, I think we could go with that. <laughs> That's what it says in the scriptures. We can... You know, maybe there were other things going on there. And maybe somebody, oh, is there a, a scientific name, Maurice, for being eaten by worms? Is there, <laughs> is there a really fancy word that you can put together? That It was eaten by worms. It's a very graphic detail. And it was before he died. It says he was eaten by worms and he breathed his last. I'm assuming that's chronological. It wasn't that he breathed his last and he was thrown in a pit and eventually worms started eating him. It was eaten up by worms. And then we have in verse 24, but the word of God increased and multiplied. Kind of brings it back into focus really quickly. Luke's just jumping through really fast here with this story. And then he's, he's throwing in this quick contrast. He's like, as this is going on, as this is going on with the people and this is going on with Agrippa, the word of God. The word and power of God is increasing and multiplying. You have this kingdom here, Herod's measly little kingdom, that's made up of all of this show and glitter and light, smoke and mirrors. Now it's nothing but worms before you people. The word of God is increasing and being multiplied. But then he, he puts more meat on this bone of what this is meaning. The, these, this word of God is the promise of God. The word of God is the promised power of the Holy Spirit being poured out upon his church. 
where we are participating in this very power. And we see that in verse 25. It says, Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. There's this almost kind of weird whiplash way of telling a story. It seems like a mundane report. He gave a business report, a church business report. And by the way, um, we have Barnabas and Saul. They came back from their, their um, responsibilities. Uh, you remember that he, they took up money to go, and they were helping the church in Jerusalem from Antioch. And it, you, know, you get this report, this missions report, thrown right in here, right after all of this other craziness that's going on in the world. The work of the church is continuing. The power of the Holy Spirit is continuing, and God's people are participating in that power of His kingdom in this way that seems so simple, seems so mundane. But it's God's kingdom. It is His way of conquering the world. The same power of that angel to be able to strike Herod down just like that is the same power that is equipping His church with tithes and offerings and gifts to go from Antioch to Jerusalem, and the appointment of elders and deacons to be about this work, that is the kingdom of God. It's not going to be the thing that you will get on the news or have people debating on social media. Well, you do, they, they, people do debate that on social media, but it's not given the same kind of, of respect and honor in seeing that it's that glory of God being poured out upon his church that is still continuing today. But just to to highlight it even more, and this is why I decided to go on into the next three verses, because I think it, it really just puts an exclamation point on this. It says, Now there were those in the church at Antioch, prophets and teachers. They have Barnabas. We've already been introduced to Barnabas multiple times throughout the narratives of Acts. We have Simon, who was called Niger. We don't really know much about this particular Simon he, other than what we have here, that he was a prophet or a teacher. He was a leader in the early church in Antioch. And Niger means black. He had this name black. And so there is this assumption, not a guarantee, but there is assumption by commentators that he may have been from Ethiopia. It, I mean, we can't, the people haven't been able to really figure out why he would be called black unless he had a dark complexion. If he had a dark complexion that was so different than those in the Middle East, then they think that he may have been from Africa. And we already know from other accounts that there was things going on in the dysphoria in the church growing also in Ethiopia, as we had in the early stories. We have Lucius of Cyrene. We don't really know for sure him. Some people say it may have been Luke himself, but we know that he is from the area of Libya in northern Africa. And then we have Manan. Now, this is an interesting guy. Here in my particular translation, it says, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. Anybody else have another translation of how, that, how he is described, other than a lifelong friend? Member of the court of Herod. You must have an older version of the ESV. Yeah, because I was reading out this morning, I was reading this scripture, and it was a, it's an older version of the ESV that Jennifer had in front of her, and that's what it said. So a member of the court, we have a um, lifelong friend. Does anybody else have another one? Some actually say that he was a foster brother. Now, the Greek word is interesting, and I kind of lean more toward the foster brother because that same Greek word was also used as a fellow nursling. 
in other areas. Someone who was nursed by the same woman when you consider how your association is. You know, it's one thing to say, hey, yeah, we went to college together, we were friends. It's another thing to say, yeah, we've been lifelong together that we both nursed from the same woman. Now, that's close. But the point is being that this man and Ian, that he, some even say that he was likely a half-brother. Now, this would have been a half-brother son of Herod the Great. And just as a quick history, I don't expect you to remember this, but it's, it's, it's important. I think Luke wants us to see this, because Luke talks about this a little bit more through the Gospels and through Acts. You have Herod the Great. You might know who Herod the Great was. What is, what is Herod the Great known for? Don't say, well, he was great. I mean, <laughs> what, 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 what part of history was he in? Jesus' birth, and he wanted Jesus dead because of what? He was afraid of his throne being taken. He was a paranoid person. He actually killed some of his sons. Well, he was married to multiple women. I think it was somewhere between 10 and 15 wives. And so he had a lot of half-children, you know, the siblings that had a lot of half-brothers and sisters. And some are saying that Menean was actually a half-brother to Herod the Tetrarch, who was the son of Herod the Great. He was one who received about a third of the dominion left over by Herod the Great. And then we have Herod Agrippa, who's not related. He was an appointment. Actually, there was some conflict between Herod Agrippa and Herod the Tetrarch, um, and they weren't, they weren't all related. But here it could be, based upon from what I can understand, whether, however we interpret it, he was close. He was in the household. Throughout his life, he has been side by side with Herod the Tetrarch, the one who had John the Baptist beheaded, and what else that he's known for? No, that was Herod Agrippa. Because <laughs> so we have Herod the Great. He's the first one mentioned early in the Gospels. And he had a son who was Herod the Tetrarch. And then we have Herod Agrippa, who's not related, but he was also a Roman governor. So Herod the Tetrarch, he was the one who called for the beheaded execution of John the Baptist and he was also the one who presided and um, was conspired for Jesus' crucifixion. And so we have one who is either a half-brother or a really close friend or someone who was in the court, someone who grew up, who was in the same household with the one, a close connected person to maybe relative of that very Herod who had John the Baptist executed and also presided over the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. This is meant to be an amazing thing for us to see that there is this interesting, it's almost like a Moses story, whereas the one who grew up under the Pharaoh, under the world kingdoms, under what is considered to be the greatest of the secular world, is actually one who is a servant of Jesus Christ in carrying out this work. It's also interesting to note that Luke is the only one who mentions Joanna. Does anybody know about the story of Joanna? I don't know, I talk about my household, so they don't get to talk. So. <laughs> Joanna actually helped fund Jesus' ministry. She was married to one who was in charge of the household of Herod the Tetrarch the son of Herod the Great. And she helped fund the ministry and support the ministry of Jesus Christ, and it's only mentioned in Luke. 
And she was also one of the first evangelists of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. She was one of the three women who actually comes to the disciples and say, he is alive. God is showing off his power that even these people that are inside of who you think are king, who, are, who you're saying are even like a god and not a man, he is carrying on his kingdom, his way, through the power of his Holy Spirit for his purposes. And it is to teach us this tremendous contrast as we are possibly going to be people very much like those in Tyre and Sidon where we may be tempted to pander for food unlike we've ever had in our history of our lives. Even Biden says there's going to be a food shortage. I don't know. I'm glad I have friends like Adam who has chickens. (laughs) So... We can't even get confident in that. We might even be easy to be prideful. I know when I think about it, I'm like, I'm glad I live out in Mendota. (laughs) When I hear gunshots go off, we celebrate. And that's something we ought to be really thankful for, not prideful about. God has put us in a unique place, but even greater than the fact that we are living in a place where we don't have the same kind of fears and concerns that other people have, we need to be humbled. Because then we'll fall into the place like Agrippa, right? You know, we start getting, I mean, I hear it. You know, it's easy not to, not, not to want to do that. I'm not going to accuse Chuck in this, but, you know, we, we like to talk about our guns. You know? But I tell you, if somebody wants us dead, it won't take the one shot. And we're, none of us are ever that alert. God wants us down, he'll send an angel and strike us down. We should be constantly thanking God for what we have, but not so much for all of those particular things that we have the very word of God. We have the very church of God. This whole narrative is to point out how the Holy Spirit has been promised to his people and how it's going to be presented and shown to the world and proclaimed by his church. That he will take people who come from this background in this philosophy and teaching, and he will overcome them. We also have not just Menean, the friend of Herod the Tetrarch, we have Saul, who was a persecutor of the church. God is showing off his power that he is going after everybody, all of his enemies, just like he promised he would, that he will take them over. And he's not taking them over like Putin trying to take over Ukraine. He has taken over their hearts. And he is making them servants of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's who we are. That we are, should be his joyful captives to this great dominion that he is showing forth in this world. He is continuing to show off his glory. And he's doing it now, both in Russia and in the Ukraine. And he's doing it here. He's doing it in Africa. He's doing it in Afghanistan and Iran. And all these places that get our notice, the most powerful and amazing thing is the power of the gospel over these people. Everywhere you look where we like to shine the spotlight or put on the glittery robe, under all of that, he is showing forth transformed people by the power of the gospel. That's the show. That's the glory. That is the glory of God. 
And then we get to see that again, Lord willing, if all goes well. Not to try to count the chickens too much before they hatch, but even through the process, whether he gets voted or approved or not, Marus having this place of being called as an elder of this particular church, this is what God is contrasting here. We have Barnabas and Saul being given another calling to go do some more work, and they do that with fasting and praying and the laying on of hands and appointing them and sending them off. It's not because that is powerful in of itself. It's a recognition of the very thing that's shown right before that. The Holy Spirit said, set these men apart and tell them to get to work. So when we see that happen... Or if we see it not happen, the process that God has called us to do and to submit unto that is how His Holy Spirit works. And that is a very hopeful thing, that we get to participate in that kingdom and in that victory. In Luke chapter 1, he begins his whole talking and his whole narrative as we have the angel telling Mary, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, unlike Herod's kingdom, whichever Herod you want to count, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So what are we to do with this? I think Peter says it well in 2 Peter. And it's a little bit long, so if you want to turn over to 2 Peter, I am really close to ending, so don't go to sleep yet. In 2 Peter chapter 1, starting with verse 4. Excuse me, verse 1. I have no idea why I said 4. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. For those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I think it's even great right there that we that faith has come from the power of Jesus Christ. We don't even, right off the bat, you can't even claim, I, I came up with this faith. Man, I'm so smart, I recognize that Jesus is our Savior. No, it's like, that is even a gift from us by the work of Jesus Christ. It says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of our, Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us, we slow down, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. 
Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. Getting where this came from, from the confession that we had this morning in the, the synod of Dort, that this is how we see these things manifested. And this is how we are confirming with that assurance as we surrender unto these things and see these fruits manifested in our life. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So as we remind ourselves that we are citizens of this particular nation, this particular kingdom, not the United States, but of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And it is by his power that we even have this knowledge and this faith. But it is by his power that he is granting us all that pertains to life and godliness. That we get to be partakers of this great promise. Acts is just a very elaborate explosion of the initial fulfillment of the promises of the Holy Spirit that is continuing now through his church by those who hold to Christ in repentance and faith. So as we end and we come to his table, how should we view this table in light of today's sermon? Peter says that some who are nearsighted, they forget who they are. They forget that they are citizens. So as we deal with fear, as I constantly, I'm in the news, and me and my brother-in-law, Daniel, he's always throwing me stuff about what's going on, and he's got good insight to what's going on. And you know, it's like, oh, what am I going to do? It's like, you know... We, Lydia says she's going to do chickens, so we can work on chickens, you know, and it's like, you know, get some, you know, get ready for all of this stuff and get all anxious, and it's like, you know, what are we going to do? Well, at least we got Yunkin, and you like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I see myself falling right into the same trap that mankind gets to. We start thinking we have the ability to control, and God quickly shows us the contrast. He is showing, no, my kingdom is, it's going, it's, it continues. It's going to be continuing through the word of God. It's going to continue through the work of his church. I'm not saying that don't be wise. He also teaches us in his word in Proverbs to be wise, to be diligent, to be working, to be making a plan of some sort, but that's not where our hope is. And so as we go to this table, we need to remember that we are foremost citizens of that kingdom, that it is these things that have been granted up to us by the power. And then we are to respond. And how does it tell us to respond in Peter? To be disciples, to be disciplined in these things, to long to see the work of the Holy Spirit being manifested very much through the word of, of God as he's always promised. To submit ourselves under these things, to see that discipline being manifested through these particular traits, faith and virtue, knowledge and self-control, steadfastness and affection and love, godliness. I think Paul says it even better. And as we go to this table, we are to remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. So, we're seeing what idolatry looks like. We see the first portion of this, of this narrative. We see how it's like us. And it says, I speak as the sensible people. He's assuming that we're, we're getting this. We're assuming that he, we're getting the scripture. We're getting the sermon here. 
Judge for yourself what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? Have we not been purchased by Jesus? This cup that we drink is a display and a proclamation and a participation in the calling of Christ to be those who are washed by him. So that's why we have to come with repentance and faith, that we need his blood, that we need to be washed by him. And then that becomes who we are. Then he says in verse 16, the bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. What he's saying there is that we are identified by the washing of Christ's blood. And because we, if we are participating in his body, we are participants together. You see that in Acts where he names all these people who are being called. And it's for the work of the church. Taking the tithes and offerings and the gifts and the support from one church. And giving it to another. And preaching and teaching the word of God. Together. A multitude of people from particular churches to other churches throughout the world praying for and fellowshipping with all of his saints. That is how his kingdom work gets done. This is a part of that and a presentation of that as we come to him. That is why Paul also says we must consider the body for us to come. We can't just come. That This is just me and God. Just me and Jesus. It's, no, no, no. If you have been washed, if you're identified and are now in that nation, you are a nation of people. You are the temple of God made up of many members. We must come to this table carrying both the burdens and the celebrations of one another. We need to be thinking about each other as we come to this table and desiring to see the power of God being manifested as he's done and is doing here in this story. Brothers and sisters, this is a tremendous table, a tremendous privilege that we're able to take together. We, can, we don't have to forget about all the other stuff, but we don't have to be anxious. We don't have to be given over to pandering and ostentatious pomp. We can give up our idolatry. The very context of that passage in 1 Corinthians is saying we're not to be those who are partaking in demons we're not to give these things that belong to the glory of God like they did with Herod and how Herod did to himself. This is for God's glory. It is in God's hope that we even get to participate in this this day. Let us pray.